One of the most contentious issues in the whole of Ripper studies, apart of course from who the killer actually was, is the so-called seaside home identification. For many, this is a source of confusion and endless debate. It's a very complex issue in reality. Today, we will look at one part of that debate, just who was the seaside home witness. This debate normally revolves around just two possible witnesses, Lavender and Schwartz. People often reach a conclusion on which of the two is the most likely based on how reliable they consider each to be. Unfortunately, this is sometimes influenced by misleading information. For instance, it is often claimed the police did not trust or believe Schwartz. However, an internal memo from Abilene, dated the 1st of November, 1888, and the letter from Anderson to the Home Office, dated the 5th of November, 1888, shows simply not so. The police did actually believe Schwartz. Similarly, it is often claimed that because it is said the vendor was used for two identifications, Sadler in 1891 and Granger in 1895, he is the most likely contender to be the seaside home witness. However, it's not that simple. Firstly, that the vendor was used for those two identifications is only supplied to us by press reports which are not confirmed. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, by the time of the supposed Granger ID in 1895, Anderson had already said that the suspect had been detained, identified, and had died in an asylum. Such debates are somewhat repetitive and maybe a touch boring to some. So today, I am taking a different approach. I am going back to basics. I am looking at a far more extensive list of witnesses than the five canonic murders. These will be judged against a set of criteria based on the comments of Anderson and Swanson. Amongst other things, this will allow us to see how people often arrive at just looking at Lavender and Schwartz. To begin with, I will say that for the purpose of this work, I am making the following assumptions and clarifications. Anderson and Swanson told what they believed to be the truth, with no exaggeration or invention. That neither were affected by old age, loss of memory, or any degree of confusion. That an identification did in fact take place at somewhere Swanson called the seaside home that the identification was positive, but the witness refused to cooperate, citing the rabbinic rule of Mizera. With regards to the timings mentioned in the witness accounts, these will all be treated as no more than rough times. The issue of non-synchronized time coming into play, and anyone who knows my work knows that that is a very important issue for me. We will not be looking at when or where the identification took place, 
such a very large subject in themselves and are beyond the scope of this talk. None of which, of course, means that the suspect who was identified by the witness was the Whitechapel killer. That's a completely different question. However, all issues surrounding the seaside home identification will be covered in great detail in the work I'm preparing on the subject as part of my Whitechapel Murders project series. Some of these potential witnesses will undoubtedly fall by the wayside very quickly. And of course, some listening to this presentation will not undoubtedly disagree with who is actually on the list to begin with. There is also a debate which we cannot ignore that Berners Street might not be by the same hand as the other murders. This is a very complex debate on its own. And for the purposes of this presentation, we will assume that Berner Street was by the same hand. I have selected a list of 18 potential witnesses from the five canonic Myrna sites. These are presented over two slides, nine witnesses on each slide and grouped by the murder site. So for Bucks Row, we have Charles Cross, Robert Paul and Harriet Lilly. Charles Cross, he saw a body from the other side of the road. Potentially, he could have seen a killer either over the body, moving from the body, walking down the street. There's no report of such. Robert Paul saw Cross in the road. Now, potentially, if Cross was the killer, he may well have seen something to indicate that. But again, there's no report of such. Harriet Lilly lived one door down from the murder site. At approximately 3.30, she claimed to have heard sounds, gasping, whispering, and a train passing. But she did not look out of her window to see what the cause was. 29 Hanbridge Street. Elizabeth Long, otherwise known as Daryl or Durrell. She saw a couple outside 29 Hanbury Street at approximately 5.30. She gave a fairly good description of the man. Albert Kadosh. He was in the backyard of 27 Hanbury Street between approximately 5.20 and 5.30. He heard a muted conversation and the sound of something falling against or, hit, or hitting the fence. But he did not look over the fence. John Davis. He discovered the body of Chapman in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street between approximately 5.45 and 6 a.m., he saw and heard nothing. Now we move to Berner Street. Israel Schwartz. Israel Schwartz saw a man attacking a woman by the gates of Duckfield Yard at approximately the right sort of time and within a yard or so of where the body of Liz Stride was later found. The attacker probably looked Schwartz directly in the face. He certainly called out to him and said something which was either Lipsky or something very much like it. Pipe Man. Pipe Man was a man seen by Schwartz in Berner Street. He had apparently just come out of the Nelson beer house. He was further south and on the opposite side of the road. He may have seen the attacker at a distance. And it's proposed by some researchers that he could be 
and the accompanies of the person who actually attacked the woman at the gates. Louis Dimschutz. He drove his horse and cart into Dutfield Yard at approximately 1 a.m. He found the body of this stride. It's often supposed he disturbed the killer, but such may not be the case. There's no report of any sighting by him. We now move on to Mitre Square. Joseph the Vendor, along with Joseph Hyam Levy and Harry Harris, was one of three men who had just left the Imperial Club, having stayed there until the rain had stopped. He saw a couple at the entrance to Church Passage, approximately 10 minutes before the body of Eddowes was found. He did, however, claim it was unlikely he would be able to identify the man again. But apparently, he was used for several later attempts at identification, those of Sadler in 1891 and Granger in 1895. Many researchers believe he is the strongest contender for the witness. Joseph Hyam Levy. He was with the vendor and Harris. He denied he got a really good look at the man. He did say, I don't like going home by myself when I see these sort of characters about. I'm off. Such gives a real impression that something he saw he didn't like. Maybe it was just the couple standing there, or maybe he recognized one of them. We don't know. But it does give the impression he was holding something back and that was reported in the evening news on the 9th of October. He was, of course, the first cousin of Ripper suspect Jacob Levy. Harry Harris. He was with Levy and the vendor. He claimed to be unable to identify anyone and told the evening news on the 9th of October that, in his opinion, neither the vendor or Levy saw anything more than he did. We now have James Blinkinsop. He was a night watchman at the fire station in St. James's Place. It was reported in the press that he was approached by a well-dressed man at around 1.30 and that he was asked if he had seen a man or woman pass. He apparently replied he had seen a couple go past but not taken much notice of them. Because the time is given at 1.30, that is before the body was found, this account is often dismissed as being inaccurate. P.C. Edward Watkins, his beat included all of Mitre Square. He entered Mitre Square from Mitre Street, and he had last been in the square 12 to 14 minutes before. He saw no one in the street, nor reported seeing anybody leave the street. P.C. James Harris, his beat included church passage up to the square, but he didn't, but it did not include the square itself. He entered church passage from Duke Street. He saw no one in the square, nor reported seeing anyone leaving it. We now move on to Miller's Court. Mary Ann Cox saw a man at approximately midnight with MJK. This man is now referred to as Blotchy. She gave a description. We have Sarah Lewis and Mrs. Kennedy, who could be the same person. However, the times they give for what they see differ. So what did they see? They saw a couple in Miller's Court, and that's about it. Lewis also reported a man loitering opposite Miller's Court sometime after 
and gave a description. It's often believed that this man could be George Hutchinson. George Hutchinson claimed to have met MJK in Commercial Street at approximately 2 a.m. He also claimed he saw a man approach her and that he followed them back to Miller's Court. He gave a very detailed description. Some would say far, de far too detailed. Having looked at this potential list and given a brief account of what the witnesses saw and what they took part in, we can now move on to the criteria used in the presentation and pair the witnesses against. This is based on the comments of Anderson and Swanson. What, they, what do they tell us? They tell us that the witness was male, that the witness got a good look at the killer. Indeed, Anderson says, the only person to ever get a good look. That the witness saw something which was certain to convict. Not just convict, but it was certain to ensure the execution of the suspect. That the witness was Jewish. And that the witness refused to testify because the suspect was also a Jew. This is almost certainly the rabbinic law, Mazira, being, being enacted by the witness. We could now have a look at the first criteria, that the witness was male. We quickly see that Harriet Lilly and Elizabeth Long were female, as were Mary Ann Cox and Mrs. Kennedy or Sarah Lewis. We can therefore exclude four persons from our list of potential suspects already. We can now move on to criteria two, that the witness got a good look at the suspect. We will look at what each witness reported and what they could reasonably have been expected to have seen. For the purposes of today's presentation, I would assume that none of the witnesses lied. Charles Cross. He didn't see anyone at all, therefore he could not have a good look at a suspect. Robert Paul. Well, if Cross was the suspect, then Robert Paul got a very good look at him. That can't be denied. Albert Kadosh did not look over the fence, did not see anyone. Therefore, he didn't get a good look at the suspect. Israel Schwartz. Well, yes, in all probability, he and the attacker looked directly at each other and estimated distance of some 12 to 25 feet apart. Obviously, he got a good look. Light man, possible. Very similar to Schwartz, but the light and the angle and the distance suggest a more limited view than Schwartz. It's estimated he was 30 to 40 foot, feet away. Louis Dimschitz, saw nobody at all. Therefore, he didn't get a good look at anyone. Joseph the vendor, he saw a man from the other side of Duke Street, a distance of over 30 feet. He gave his description, but also claimed he would probably not recognize the man again, although he was used for later identification, so we are told. That leaves the question of whether he got a good look open to debate. Joseph Hyam Levy, much the same, Although the fact that he didn't like what he saw suggests that he got a good look at something. 
Harry Harris. Well, Harris claimed that he only saw the back of the man. He couldn't identify anything, and he didn't believe the vendor or Levy saw any more than he did. James Blinkensop, he noticed a couple, but how good a view he got is actually very debatable. P.C. Edward Watkins, didn't see anyone, so the answer must be no. P.C. James Harvey, again, apparently didn't see anyone. The answer again must be no. George Hutchinson, well, yes, he gave a very detailed description, but that's greatly questioned by many people. There is an issue of sorts with Harry Harris. Although he is in the same position as the vendor in Levy, he claims he only saw the back of the man and got and didn't see anything at all. Therefore, I will now exclude him and six others from the list, and we can now move on to criteria three of our presentation. We can now proceed to our third criteria, that the witness saw something which would certainly convict the suspect and that it would ensure his execution. So let's look at our remaining witnesses and see what, if anything, they saw. Robert Paul. Now, if the suspect was Lechmere, Robert Paul saw a man close to the body. That's all he says, no more than that. Now, it's very doubtful in my view that that on its own would be enough to convict somebody. You can't be sure if that's true in 1888 because juries did like eyewitness statements, but he doesn't actually see anything, does he? One should add, of course, that Lechmere in no way at all matches anything that relates to Anderson's suspect in the slightest. There is no similarity between them whatsoever. Israel Schwartz. Now, Israel Schwartz saw an actual attack on a woman at, the, at approximately the correct location and at the approximately the correct time. I don't think there's any doubt here at all that Schwartz saw a physical attack on somebody where, where several minutes later, perhaps 10, perhaps 15, perhaps five, timings, of course, are open to debate here all the time. Very close to that time, the body of Stribe was found in approximately the same position. That surely is enough to convict. It certainly would have been in 1888. Of that, I am absolutely certain. Pipe man. Well, what he saw was very similar to Schwartz, but he's at a greater distance. Now, due to the light and the, and the distance, he may not have been able to give a positive ID, but what he did see could have resulted in a conviction. I think that's pretty sure. We must ever add in here, there's still some people who believe that Pipe Man was actually an accomplice to the person who attacked the woman outside Duckfield Yard. Joseph the vendor. He places a potential suspect at the entrance to Church Passage, some 160 feet from the murder site. The time is close enough to link it within 10 minutes. But despite its proximity, I argue that it's questionable that such would be enough to convict somebody. A solicitor could easily argue 
that the person who was seen, the suspect, moved on, left the, the woman alone, and somebody else came along afterwards. Joseph Hyam Levy, very much the same as uh, Joseph the Vendor, but one must take into account here that it's possible that he recognised somebody. There's that hint in his statements that give that impression that something he saw he didn't like. James Blenkinsop, at best, he saw a couple pass by. That's not enough to convict. I'm sorry, that is never enough to convict. He didn't see any attack. He wasn't even taking too much notice. I think we can exclude him. George Hutchinson places a possible suspect at the murder site. Now, that's very important. But his account is questionable. And even if his account is true, because of the known issues with placing time of death in the 19th century and other reports regarding later sightings um, by various people, it's questionable if such was certain to convict. It may well have been, we just don't know. While some of the accounts can be questioned on the grounds of were they sure to convict, I feel that only Blinkensop can be safely discounted, although Robert Paul does come very close to such. While I said I assume that all the witnesses are telling the truth, the issues of Hutchinson's reliability cannot be totally ignored, I'm afraid. But for now, he remains on the list. So now we move to criteria four, that the witness was Jewish. And here we can see quite straightforwardly, Robert Paul wasn't and George Hutchison wasn't. Pipe man remains because we know nothing about him. We don't know who he was, where he came from, his religion or anything else. And therefore, he cannot be excluded from this criteria. We can now look at criteria five. That is that the witness refused to testify because the suspect was also Jewish like himself. This is seen by some as imagination on the part of Anderson and Swanson. Some even suggest it's anti-Semitic and scapegoating. But is it really? I think we need to look at this in a slightly more depth. In 1910, following the serialization of Anderson's book in Blackwoods, the then editor of the Jewish Chronicle, one Leopold Greenberg, writing under the pen name Mentor, said that it was both erroneous and ridiculous to suggest that a Jew would shield and not give up a fellow Jew who was a murderer to the Gentile authorities. One must say that this statement by Greenberg is somewhat misleading. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's quite straightforward. There was and is a rabbinic law called Mazira, which in fact forbids Jews from handing a fellow Jew over to non-rabbinic authorities. Anderson did not make it up. What he said occurred actually existed. It is, however, probable that the established Jewish community in the UK was somewhat less likely to adhere to this rule strictly. 
as they became more anglicized. It is also fair to say that the new arrivals from Europe were probably more likely to follow Mazira, having often escaped pogroms in Europe in which unfortunately law enforcement authorities were often involved themselves. That the established Jewish community wanted to deny that such could have happened in Whitechapel in 1888 is entirely understandable. They did not wish for any further anti-Semitic feelings to emerge even 20 years after the, the murders, either in Britain itself or in Whitechapel in particular. If one reads Fishman's East End 1888, one can see that there was a considerable friction between the existing Jewish community and the new arrivals in the 1880s. In fact, there was a move by some in the new community, in the established community, to encourage the new arrivals to return back from whence they had come. Another point worth making is that it is possible that the witness may have cited the rule of Mazira, even though they didn't really follow it themselves, to avoid testifying as an excuse to testify against someone who they knew. Assessing how the rule of Mazira may have been practiced by any individual is of course pure speculation. However, I think we can make an assessment based simply on new arrivals or more likely to adhere to it than the established community. So what do we see amongst our four remaining witnesses? Well, Israel Schwartz was a very recent arrival and therefore following the assumption, he was more likely to adhere to Mazira. Pipe man, totally unknown, therefore we can make no comments about him at all, but we can't rule him out, simple as that. We don't even know if he's Jewish or Gentile. Joseph the Vendor, an established member of the Jewish community. Following the assumption, he's probably less likely to adhere to Mazira, but we can't be certain of that. We're just making a guess. Joseph Haim Levy, very much like Joseph the Vendor. However, there's a difference here. Look at the comments he made about not liking those sort of characters. He may have used Mazira as an excuse to allow him not to testify against somebody he actually knew. I have a suspicion that the issue of Mazira, one way or another, could have a very important bearing on the identity of the seaside home witness. Having looked at our five criteria, we can now look at some initial results from those comparisons. We have reached a point where we can say that a number of potential witnesses has been greatly reduced. There are issues over whether either of the men leaving the Imperial Club remain on the list. That's the vendor or Levy saw anything that could ensure conviction. In many ways, their sighting is very 
is little different from that of Long, Cox or Kennedy. They see someone with probably the victim close to, but not at the murder site. Levy, however, may have seen someone he knew, which could have a bearing on the issue. Both Lavender and Levy are relatively established and anglicised, and probably this likely to adhere to Mazira. We cannot, however, say for certain that they would not. It is, of course, possible that Mazira was used as an excuse simply not to testify. Pipe Man is very hard to assess. We know nothing about him. We do not know how good a look he got at the attack or if he was Jewish or Gentile. Schwartz appears to meet all the criteria so far given. There are, however, a few other points that need to be considered before we reach a conclusion. One possibility we have not looked at so far is that the witness we have some, is somebody we have never heard of. Such a possibility must be very real. The name was never made public, but they would obviously need to meet all the five criteria that we have already mentioned. Let me give one interesting example of an unnamed potential witness. This report appears in the Evening Standard on the 12th of November. It's reported that an unnamed gentleman who was engaged in business in the vicinity of the murder in Dorset Street was walking through Mitre Square at about 10 a.m. in the morning on the 9th. He saw a tall, well-dressed man rushing through the square. His face, collar and shirt were bloodstained. Unfortunately, we are not told the direction the bloodstain was going. The bloodstained man was going. Was he going towards Dorset Street or away from Dorset Street? Given the issues of the time of death, this cannot be ruled out on purely medical grounds. Do we consider that this occurring in Mitre Square could somehow be linked to McNaughton and his policeman in Mitre Square? It's intriguing, but possibly not, I would suggest. More interesting is the comment by Henry Cox that the police did not really get onto the identification of the killer until after the last murder, that of Mary Jane Kelly. That is certainly food for thought. We now move on to what may be, for some, a controversial viewpoint. An issue I refer to as the elephant in the room. That is, that some form of identification by a police officer of a suspect did actually occur. Although on the surface we have discounted both Watkins and Harvey as potential suspects, the suggestion of a police ID does seem to persist. Why is this? We know few, if any, police officers, as police officers at the time were Jewish, and so that doesn't seem to fit with our criteria for. Maybe there is an answer to this, but first let us look at a few other points. Of course, it has often been assumed that the seaside home was either the police convalescence home in Hove, 
or a similar establishment used by the police. One such establishment near to Dover, with links to the city force, has also recently been suggested. The reason these assumptions are made is that people wonder why the witness, why the suspect would have been taken to somewhere called the seaside home, obviously outside of London, or it appears so, front identification. It's assumed that the witness was a police officer. Well, so far, nothing too controversial, but that may be about to change. In the Aberconway version of the McNaughton Memorandum, he says that possibly the only person to get a clear view of the, of the killer was a city PC who was near to Mitre Square. Note, near to, not in. McNaughton goes on to say that his second suspect, Kosminski, looked very much like the person who was seen. However, he then goes on to reject Kosminski, as we all know, and favour Druitt. If McNaughton was the only source of a police ID, we could possibly ignore him. The memorandum is, after all, a very odd document, to say the least. It's full of inaccuracies and downright mistakes. However, it's not the only source. We have two very different accounts by Sergeant, by Sergeant Stephen White. One is, his famous one is the famous version where he passes a man in an alleyway who stumbles and there's a quick verbal exchange. There is, however, a more mundane version where a, where a suspect is being watched, but contact is lost for half hour or so, and during that period, a murder occurs. Finally, we have Henry Cox saying a murder occurred while one of their best was at the top of the road. Now, Cox is one of our best, which may mean any police officer, of course, but maybe it means a fellow city police officer. Cox was a city officer himself. And this ties in with the previous mention of a city officer by McNaughton. It is clear that the idea of a police witness is therefore persistent. Could it be that at the centre of these various accounts is a kernel of the truth, that someone was seen near to, but not at a murder site? Something that would not convict, but something which may corroborate another sighting. Maybe Watkins and Harvey did see someone leaving the square, but it did not make it into the public reports. Or, of course, we have the well-dressed man who approached Blinkinsop in St. James's Place. Maybe he was a police plain clothes officer who had seen someone. And, of course, we do know of at least two men who were stopped and questioned in nearby Wentworth Street some time later. Could it be one of these? Indeed, it need not actually be related to Mitre Square. Some have argued that while the account, that the white account fits Castle Alley and Alice Mackenzie in 1889 better than Mitre Square. And now we have the controversy. 
What if there were in reality not one, but two separate identifications? One by a police officer near to a murder site. Certainly not enough to convict. And a second ID. One far more convincing, one perhaps of an attack taking place, witnessed by somebody else. And the, the point is that the same suspect is identified both times. Let's take this further. If, say, the second sighting was in Burner Street and the first was at Mitre Square or another murder site, it might prove that the same hand was involved in all the murders. Now, such is, of course, pure speculation. I will leave it up to you to decide if such is worthy of any consideration at all. I think it probably is. I will now draw some conclusions from my presentation, some of which may come as a surprise to some people. The vendor appears in the criteria used in this presentation not to be in the top two or possibly three witnesses. His sighting is in reality no more sure to convict than several others. Also, his apparent willingness to take part in several other identifications does not suggest any reluctance on, the, on his part. This, of course, is assuming that Swanson and Anderson were correct. However, one can see why he is often given as one of the two strongest possibilities, even if in-depth studies suggest that view may not be correct. Levy may actually be a better bet for the witness. We know that he knows the family of Martin and Samuel Kosminski, and it has been suggested that there may be a link to the suspect via this family. He is, of course, also first cousin to a, another suspect, Jacob Levy. Could it be that he's actually covering up and using Mazira, as I've said before, not to give evidence against somebody he knows? The problem here, of course, is that the name is Levy, not Kosminski, which is what Swanson says. Now, is that an insurmountable problem? I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. Pipe man, to my surprise, cannot be entirely excluded. But it's an odd one because we can't really include him either. We don't know what he saw or who he was. So he almost fits into the same category as the next, an unknown witness. This must be a very strong possibility, and I suggest both are actually stronger than Lavender. Schwartz, however, appears to fit just about all the criteria especially if he did not initially realise the attack he saw was Jewish, and therefore did not tell the police that he would not give evidence. Indeed, he went along and gave evidence to start off with. That could only be if he didn't realise that the person he saw was Jewish. Just this week, Jack the Ripper Tours posted a very interesting video on Schwartz on YouTube. The address is given there, and I will leave this up for a few seconds for people to take note of that and find it. And finally, one final thought. The light, the late Martin Fido, 
who was the first to champion Anderson and his suspect, did not initially believe that Aaron Kosminski was Anderson's suspect or the Ripper. However, in Ripperologist number 129, he amended that view and accepted that Aaron Kosminski could have killed Stride, but not the others. Therefore, he was not Jack the Ripper. He did, however, say that he could well have been Anderson's suspect after all. That would, of course, mean a witness in Burner Street, would it not? Thank you for listening.